This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, December 7th. I'm Samantha Sherris. There are many cases before the Supreme Court this term. A few weeks ago, the nation's highest court heard oral arguments for nearly five hours for two cases, Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College and Students for Fair Admissions versus University of North Carolina. Joining us on today's podcast to discuss these cases and more is Lance Azumi, the Senior Director of Education Studies at the Pacific Research Institute and author of Obama's Education Takeover. We'll get to my conversation with Lance right after this. The Heritage Foundation takes the field on offense with their Young Leaders program. I'm Evelyn Homily from Hillsdale College. I'm Harrison Stewart from the University of Virginia. I'm a journalism intern with The Daily Signal. I'm a digital productions intern in communications. For spring, summer, and fall semesters, the Heritage Foundation hosts undergraduate and postgraduate interns right here in the nation's capital to train our country's future conservative leaders. As a Daily Signal intern, I've had the opportunity to cover exciting events here in D.C. and work in a fast-paced environment with some of the conservative movement's best journalists. In YLP, interns are on the cutting edge of the conservative movement, attending exclusive briefings from heritage experts, members of Congress, and movement leaders fighting for the fate of our country. It's been exciting connecting with big names in the political world and better understanding our nation's greatest threats. If you want to go on offense with other passionate, dedicated conservatives, go to heritage.org intern to learn more about the Young Leaders Program. Lance Azumi, a senior director of education studies at the Pacific Research Institute and author of Obama's Education Takeover, is joining the podcast today. Lance, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. It's a great honor and pleasure to be on this podcast with you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to talk to you today about uh, the Supreme Court cases. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments for nearly five hours for two cases, Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College and Students for Fair Admissions versus University of North Carolina. Lance, first and foremost, can you tell us a little bit about these cases? So what these cases involve is basically at the heart is racial discrimination. Uh, what uh, Harvard and UNC have done, uh, at, at least it's alleged by the plaintiffs, is that uh, they have used their admission system to specifically keep down the numbers of Asian Americans who are uh, being admitted into those two institutions. And so in the case of Harvard, for example, uh, they have uh, used um, race as a factor has has been allowed under previous Supreme Court rulings, but have used it in a way that basically sets a quota on the uh, number of Asians who are uh, uh, being admitted into Harvard. So, for example, um, if you took the same, uh, if you took an Asian American applicant who had a 25% chance of getting into Harvard, if you changed his race to Hispanic American, you would that same person with the same characteristics would have a 77% chance of getting into Harvard. And if you change that uh, Asian American to an African American, with again, with the same characteristics, uh, that person would then have a 95% chance of getting into Harvard. And so uh, what Harvard has done is uh, taken uh, this uh, issue of race and made it from just uh, a, a minor factor in uh, a panoply of different factors in admitting students into uh, Harvard University and made it basically the factor 
you know, in terms of uh, deciding who gets to come in and who gets who doesn't come in. And Harvard's own research, for example, shows that if we we're just uh, if they were just admitting students on academic uh, qualifications and Asian Americans have the highest academic index uh, in, amongst all applicants uh, at Harvard, then uh, that's uh, test scores and grade point average that uh, if you're just admitting students on academic qualifications, uh, Asian Americans would represent about 43, 45% of the student uh, entering class. And historically, that number has been only about 20%. So it's been a huge um, uh, uh, factor in determining who doesn't get into Harvard. And in Harvard's case, it's Asian Americans. And it's the same with at the University of North Carolina. Uh, the University of North Carolina, you look at the historic uh, grade point averages, uh, and you find out that Asian Americans uh, with the same grade point average as uh, other minorities, such as African Americans, have an uh, infinitesimally smaller chance of getting into Harvard as uh, other minority groups. And so it ends up being uh, racial discrimination and, again, a cap on the number of Asians who can get into the University of North Carolina. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about affirmative action, because with with every article that I'm reading, with every, um, you know, when I look more into these cases, uh, affirmative action comes up. Can you walk us through a little bit of the history of affirmative action and, and if the Supreme Court were to uh, you know, rule in favor of students for fair admissions, what would be the immediate and long-term impacts? The history of affirmative action really kind of starts off, you know, it's in higher education, uh, you know, where we're having these cases. And the cases at the Supreme Court level start off with the Bakke decision uh, several decades ago, where which involved a student who sued the University of California for admissions into medical school. Uh, in that case, uh, Supreme Court actually uh, allowed the plaintiff to get uh, into medical school, but still allowed affirmative action, basically. And what has happened since then is that uh, you've had uh, cases such as the Gruder case, which was in the early 2000s, which is really is the kind of the key case here, uh, where the justices... Uh, kind of wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They basically said that uh, if you're going to use race in uh, 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 in college admissions, you have to use uh, what's called a strict scrutiny case, uh, uh, test in order to uh, show a compelling government interest in allowing that uh, use of race. But on the uh, but then what they did is that they basically then deferred to uh, the school in, in question, the University of Michigan Law School, and to say that, well, we're deferring to your judgment as to uh, your justification of race uh, to admit these students. So you can't have it both ways, really, if you think about that. If you're the Supreme Court and you're saying that in order to um, pass the race test that you have to meet a compelling government interest, well, that uh, judgment about whether you meet a, a compelling government uh, interest is really up to the courts to decide. It's not up to the agency involved who is actually doing the discrimination uh, to then you know get deference from the courts to say we're we're going to leave it up to your judgment. And so um, what 
the courts have done is that they have deferred to these uh, uh, institutions of higher education saying that as long as basically you say that uh, uh, you need to ha use race in order to improve uh, diversity on your campuses, that that would be enough. And the trouble is, is that diversity is, you know, an amorphous category, right? I mean, what exactly is diversity? And, you know, how do you measure its impact? I mean, schools can always say that they are using race in order to um, uh, improve diversity on their campus, uh, but and to improve the education environment and the educational experience of students. But what sort of uh, evidence is there that that actually happens? Uh, in fact, most of the schools cannot uh, show any kind of empirical evidence. In fact, that came up uh, at the uh, hearing where uh, on this current case involving Harvard and uh, uh, UNC uh, at the Supreme Court hearing where uh, justices questioned the defendants the, um, about how they could quantify that sort of impact. And they really couldn't because there is actually no real evidence to how to quantify that. And so, therefore, I think that uh, right now, if you look at uh, where the court is going, certainly in terms of the questioning that the uh, uh, majority of the justices had for uh, both the plaintiffs and the defendants in the Harvard and UNC case, that uh, you know it looks as if the Supreme Court is going to, uh, hopefully, in my in my uh, opinion, hopefully overturn uh, their previous uh, cases and rule that. As Justice, um, the Chief Justice Roberts said, that discrimination is basically discrimination. Yeah, that was actually my next question. Uh, if there were any signs pointing to the justices ruling in favor of students for fair admissions, um, it, it seems like uh, just based on what I've been reading and what you just said, uh, it, it appears that way. Obviously, we'll have to wait and see for for the final ruling. Um, you know, we were just talking about sort of these these impacts uh, that could potentially come from a, a decision in favor of students for fair admissions. Uh, the CNN article writes that, you know, a decision, uh, you know, in, in favor of uh, students for fair admissions could diminish the number of African-American and Hispanic students in higher education. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think that uh, what it might do is that it might uh diminish uh, the number of students that, let's say, may end up at Harvard or UNC or some of these uh, elite selective schools. But that doesn't mean that uh, you're going to have uh, a necessarily a reduction in the uh, proportion of uh, African-Americans and Hispanic students in higher education in general. I think that uh, there's also uh, a lot of research done by Professor Richard Sander over at UCLA Law School, which shows that, you know, when you have issues of mismatch where, you know, students who are qualifying to get into some of these uh, elite institutions from underrepresented minority groups who may not have the academic qualifications that other students may have there, that you end up having a uh, higher dropout rate from there and because of this mismatch in terms of uh, their preparation. And so, therefore, uh, I think that uh, what you this um, decision, if it goes uh, according to what I think it's going to go and that they're going to overturn uh, this, uh, uh, the previous uh, Supreme Court decisions on race and on race preferences and uh, placing this uh, emphasis on just this amorphous term of diversity. If that 
whole set of uh, uh, previous decisions is overturned and the, the Supreme Court rules in favor of the uh, defendant students for fair admission, I think that what you're going to have is not necessarily a diminishment in the uh, number of or percentage of students from underrepresented groups in higher education, but probably a um, better match for them at institutions where they're better prepared to succeed. And I think that one of the things that uh, is really important is that, you know, and, and this is a point I, I, I always make about these affirmative action and race preference cases in higher education, is that the real problem here is uh, that we're trying to fix this issue of having students of different uh, ethnic and racial groups in, at, in higher education, basically at the back end of the process, at the admissions into these institutions, when really what you should be doing is focusing on enlarging the pool of more qualified uh, applicants to uh, attend these, uh, these, these schools you know, any institution of higher education, especially these uh, elite uh, selective institutions. And that requires that there be real reforms at the K-12 level to improve uh, the uh, percentages of uh, underrepresented minorities who would qualify, you know, in straight up competition with, group, from, uh, with uh, other ethnic groups. Now, on the topic of colleges, I, I want to shift a little bit to test scores and this recent uh, data that came out from the ACT. Uh, now, according to a press release from ACT, which is a nonprofit organization that administers the college readiness exam, the national average ACT composite score for the high school class of 2022 was 19.8, the lowest average score in more than three decades. What do you think contributed to these record low test scores and what's the solution for reversing course? Well, I think that uh, the these test score uh, data from uh, you know, college entrance examinations like the ACT, I mean, they, they're in line with the collapse in test scores in K-12. And so if you look at uh, the K-12 uh, results that uh, from the National Assessment for Education Progress that also came out just recently. And you find that there was uh, a record drop in um, uh, uh, scores in math and reading. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, the drop in mathematics in fourth and eighth grade was the greatest in history of, the, uh, uh, of that examination. And so I think that uh, uh, what you saw is a, a number of different things. First of all, you know, the whole COVID disaster in education, both in um, uh, K-12 and in higher education, is obvious that the, the decision of um, most states uh, to uh, close schools, depending on the state, for different durations, in my own home state in California, was closed for a very, very, schools were closed for a very, very long time, much longer than many other parts of the country. And so uh, the inability of the regular public schools to uh, engage in effective instruction during the uh, school closures through remote distance learning, uh, the teachers were untrained, the, uh, the standards just evaporated, and so that uh, students uh, were you know, often in school or having school for only several hours a day instead of a full school day. And so you saw this uh, cumulative buildup 
uh, to the point where we have these horrendous test scores. In fact, mm -hmm. during the pandemic itself, what you uh, what uh, different studies found is that you had huge learning losses, uh, depending and depending on the uh, demographic group, anywhere from five to six to amongst, let's say, low-income students, seven months' worth of learning loss uh, during the pandemic. And so if you have that amount of learning loss, what's going to happen? What's well, going to show up in these test scores? And so uh, the, both in the fourth and eighth grade NAEP examination test scores in reading and mathematics, there was a collapse. The ACT, the same thing. You know, when students are, are leaving high school uh, where they haven't been in school for, you know, a couple years and now are having to take an entrance examination, uh, you're going, they had a, there's a collapse in, in learning that's uh, evidenced by these scores. And so I think that, first of all, the, the COVID situation had a huge impact. Secondly, I think uh, as a subset of that is this collapse of standards within the mm -hmm. schools. And so uh, if, if you talk to uh, students, like I, I just interviewed a, uh, a student here in California uh, who is currently in high school, but, uh, you know, I asked him what was his experience like, you know, the last several years, uh, and he was uh, saying that how uh, the academic rigor at his school uh, had just basically uh, evaporated, mm -hmm. and so that you could uh, take tests multiple times, you could turn in homework late, uh, final projects, final, uh, uh, um, f final uh, projects were made optional, all kinds of different uh, requirements that were in place, you know, uh, prior were now, uh, you know, now made optional. So it really uh, ended up uh, disincentivizing students to study hard and to keep up. Because now, hey, you know, if I don't turn in my homework, nothing happens to me. If I uh, don't, if I uh, fail to test, so what? Because I can always take it, you know, five other times. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, too, what happened is that the passing grade on many exams were lowered, too, so that you could pass uh, your uh, exams, uh, you know, at 60, 50 percent instead of 70 or 80 percent. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, that is one of the uh, things that you're seeing, too. And so, you know, when you look at the, uh, the data out there as to, OK, uh, was it just the closures, uh, you know, that uh, uh, reduced the, these test scores? And you look, for example, at states that uh, kept their uh, schools closed longer than others. And, you know, the, the, the record is a little mixed as to uh, 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 whether closures simply by themselves were uh, the main factor, you have to dig down deeper to see, well, what happened to academics in all of the states to mm -hmm. see, uh, you know, why did these students uh, and are these students performing so poorly uh, in all of these states? Yeah, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this this recent tweet from the National Education Association. It sparked backlash online. Um, a lot of people replying to the NEA, um, you know, kind of questioning the tweet, uh, I saw on Fox, uh, you know, people were talking about it. And, and the tweet says, uh, quote, educators love their students and know better than anyone what they need to learn and to thrive. What are your thoughts on this? Well, if they love their students that much, if the unions love their, their students that much, they would have been the very first people to uh, try and get their students back into the classroom. 
And so, uh, but in, un, unfortunately, mm -hmm. this, the, the unions were the main obstacle to returning students to the classroom. I know here again in my own home state of California, uh, the teachers unions around our state, state and local, were amongst the most vociferous opponents of returning uh, uh, students to the classroom. And they put up roadblock after roadblock, uh, you know, to prevent students from returning. And so, you know, uh, consequently, uh, what you saw here in California is, again, the bottom dropping out from under student performance. If you look at uh, California's uh, NAEP scores and you look at, for example, in 2019, before the, um, before the pandemic hit, and you look not, not at low-income kids, but let's look at middle-class kids. If you look at middle-class kids in, let's say, eighth-grade math, for example, 50% uh, of middle-class kids in 2019, we're scoring at the proficient level, which isn't great. That means half of them are not scoring proficient. But then you look to 2022 among in eighth grade mathematics for these um, middle income students, and you find that it's fallen from 50% before the pandemic to 41%. You know, in 2022, and so that's a 20, basically almost a 20% drop in proficiency amongst middle class kids. And so, uh, the, again, you had this massive uh, collapse of student performance, and the unions knew that. The unions could see that. I mean, all throughout the pandemic, you, uh, students were complaining not just about their academics, but about their uh, social-emotional health. You had heard about the mental problems affecting kids because they were isolated and uh, couldn't be with other kids. Their, their learning was obviously suffering, but, uh, you know, you had you know, serious health problems where you had kids, uh, the, the percentage of kids being uh, taken to emergency rooms because of mental health issues skyrocketed during the uh, pandemic. And the unions knew this, and they still not only did nothing, but they put up roadblocks to the uh, way to uh, address these problems mm -hmm. by blocking the opening of the schools. Lance, just one final question for you. As we prepare for the next Congress, what are you hoping to see policy-wise relating to education? Well, first of all, I think that, uh, you know, we need to see, uh, you know, a number of different things. I mean, first of all, I think we need to see greater accountability in the way the federal government spends its education dollars. I mean, the, fe the, the, the federal government spends billions and billions of dollars, and yet there's very little accountability for it. Uh, and so, I mean, you have various uh, uh, watchdog groups like the Government Accountability Office uh, who have put out reports saying that there's uh, very little accountability for where the dollars end up. And I think that like when you look at, for example, how uh, the COVID dollars that Washington has uh, uh, sent down to the states and to the school districts, uh, there's very little accountability as to how that money is being used, for example, to address issues of learning loss. I mean, some of that money, a certain percentage of that money is supposed to address learning loss. But again, uh, first of all, is that money being used to address learning loss? And if it is, then, or at least make the, the states and local districts are uh, attempting to use it to uh, address learning loss, are their efforts successful? And that's the, the thing that uh, taxpayers oftentimes never get that information. Are all these billions of dollars actually getting bang for the buck from the taxpayers? And almost always we find out it's not, uh, or we find out we have no information. And so we need greater accountability. Secondly, uh, I think that we need to look at uh, uh, 
increasing the amount of school choice options available for parents because having the government um, supply all this quote-unquote solutions has been a disaster because we, as you see in uh, these test scores, that government is not the answer and that uh, parents are much better situated to understand the individual needs of their child. And so, uh, you know, we, uh, the Congress should look at different ways in which they can either backpack money onto uh, their onto students uh, in order for them to find the type of education services that best meet their needs or, you know, uh, be able to come up with scholarship programs that uh, make uh, scholarships available to students, again, to find those more individualized ways to address their learning needs. And so, you know, accountability uh, and I think uh, uh, greater school choice, I think we need greater transparency also, too, from the federal government. Uh, there's very little understanding by the average person, average taxpayer, as to where their money goes, uh, and the government really doesn't make any real effort to show uh, uh, parents and taxpayers how their monies are being used, certainly, uh, you know, federal dollars. So I think that, you know, we need to look at accountability, transparency, and choice. Well, Lance Azumi, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, Lance is the Senior Director of Education Studies at the Pacific Research Institute and author of Obama's Education Takeover. Lance, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to my interview with Lance Azumi. If you haven't gotten a chance, make sure you subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts. And help us reach even more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We read and appreciate all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. And we'll be back with you all tomorrow morning. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen, Samantha Asheris, and Jillian Richards. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.